0: Hello and welcome to The Shindig, I'm your host Dr. Tom Horn. today we've got a real treat for you. We're going to be talking to Dr. Adrian Maldonado from National Museum Scotland and we're going to be talking about the Galloway Horde.
1: There's something about the Galloway Horde though that makes it stand out even within that, uh, that realm of Viking hordes.
0: Yeah, that's that horde that was discovered a few years ago in Southwest Scotland that contained not only silver, gold, but also silk linen, leather, the soft stuff that never survives.
1: They actually are holding a uh, cord made out of silk. So there's cord going through these
0: sockets. And it allows us to tell this amazing story about a world where Britons, Vikings, Irish, Anglo-Saxons are all mixing and fighting and intermarrying. And
1: so there are Gaelic speakers, there are British speakers, and their are Anglo-Saxon speakers and Old Norse speakers, all in this county in the 9th, 10th and 11th centuries living cheek by jowl.
0: And this hoard tells us a little bit about that story at the end of the 9th century. So join us today as we discuss all these amazing finds in the context of this hoard. It will change the way you look at the early medieval period in this part of Britain and Ireland so join us today enjoy I know you will welcome to the program Adrian um I'm just gonna I'm just gonna begin with it because I'm so excited about this I'm gonna give you a tough hopefully relatively fair first question why should we and our listeners be interested in the galloway hordes I mean there are lots of hordes. there's probably going to be one discovered by the time this goes out you know with with the explosion of metal detecting, what what makes Um, It's special enough to be really this global phenomenon.
1: The Galloway Horde is something special and unique, even within that rarefied world of Viking hordes. And you're right, there have been some pretty astounding discoveries of silver hordes uh, uh, over the last two decades due to more increased responsible metal detecting. There's something about the Galloway Horde, though, that makes it stand out even within that, uh, that realm of Viking hordes. And I would say within the realm of hordes that have been excavated. With an archaeologist present. Um, And the reason I say that is because we have the stratigraphy, we have the layering of this deposit because it was recorded uh, basically at every level as the archaeologist uh, Andy Nicholson sort of uh, uh, went down uh, through every layer. In addition to that, it was sent almost immediately to a lab for conservation, which means that we've preserved soft things which usually uh, rot or disappear as soon as they are exposed to the air again. Things like textiles, wood and leather, uh, which usually don't survive. They were taken to the lab and cold storage almost immediately. And so basically with the Galloway Hoard we have really good recording and really good preservation which means we have things which simply don't survive in other hordes of this kind.
0: Yeah and I think that's important for our listeners to know most of the hordes that we're working with and people will be talking about you know when they compare the Galilee horde to other hordes is that um, it was discovered by antiquarians so it could have been you know 18th 19th century and for their time as you know we're all doing as best as we can for our time and they were doing the best they could for the time but they were interested in the shiny thing so you know we we get most of the silver that's recovered but a lot of it would be given away to the people that were digging it up as a sort of reward at the time and they've had to be traced and there's great detective stories about people finding coins and packages of of silver that have come from hoards that you you may know today like cuerdale Hoard and various great hordes at scale and straw rock in scotland um but you know what Adrian is telling us is, is very true that you know you've suddenly got this, you know, high-level archaeological under modern conditions discovery, which is giving us the, the squidgy stuff, the soft stuff that we just don't discover. And you know, um, just you know, so when the archaeologists are there and you know, when it's been discovered, you can just paint a moment of that discovery because it was, um, I we're right in thinking it was metal detectorists that discovered it first and then they were responsible and call, called in the archaeologists.
1: That's right, so this is a, a story of how a horde could be found By uh, metal detectors uh, and then get the archaeologists involved as soon as they could. Uh, So yes, the discovery was made in the course of metal detecting uh, in a field where there had been previous finds reported to the treasure trove. Uh, um, And so uh, as soon as they recognized what they had found, which was a pile of silver bullion, which we'll talk about later, but also uh, uh, mixed with something quite unusual, which was a silver pectoral cross, a cross that would have been worn around the neck. That was something really striking. As soon as they recognized the importance of those things, they called uh, uh, They called the right people. And eventually it was the county archaeologist, Andrew Nicholson, uh, who came out and undertook the remainder of the excavation that day, uh, with the help of the metal detectorists there as well. And it was
0: important that they did this because there are some legal ramifications. If you find something that's you know, treasure or obvious other, because there are different laws and it's been in the media recently about the changes to the laws in, in England and Wales, but it's a different process. I mean, I know this is not necessarily your area of expertise, but just if you just give the listener just a, a rough idea that there is a difference in, in Scotland.
1: Yeah, that's right. So there are differences in sort of a uh, uh, treasure law depending on where in Britain you are, uh, but in in Scotland, uh, all antiquities uh, uh, have to be reported to the treasure trove, and uh, in this case, yeah, they uh, they were right away, uh, and that's how they were able to send out the
0: right people. Um. So Adrian, it's it's very easy for us to musically geek out get into all the cool stuff that's in it, all these amazing organic uh, preservation and all the brilliant work that you and the team are, are doing on it. But I think it would really be helpful I think also for me, I think being selfish and as the host I'm allowed to be, if if we were standing over a hole in the ground, um, it's Balmagee, um, around 900 when this, the Galloway Hoard is, we think, roughly is deposited. So, you know, our hands are muddy, we just put this in the ground what, what world do we know? What language are we speaking? Um, you know, what's our worldview? Um, yeah, if you could give us just a tiny insight into that, and um, that would be really cool.
1: I think we have to kind of build up to the people Uh, and what languages that they were speaking. That's something that'll maybe come through in the course of this conversation because it's something that we're still trying to work out. So for the moment, let's just have some uh, disembodied hands rather than put names and faces on these people just for the moment. But if you are uh, standing above that hole now, around (laughs) 900 AD, you are in the kingdom of Northumbria. Now in the early medieval period, uh, uh this was part of what we now call Scotland but Dumfries and Galloway were actually part of many different kingdoms there is a British kingdom there first but from the seventh, and certainly by the eighth century, this part of the world is now part of this Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria, and Northumbria is one of the major Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. It stretches all the way to uh, the fourth, uh, the first, the fourth near uh, Edinburgh, where I am today, uh, uh, and and down towards Yorkshire, uh, uh, and so this is a massive kingdom. But in the course of the ninth century, Northumbria like other parts of England and Scotland are under attack by Viking uh, and Viking led armies. So by the year 900, by the end of the ninth century, Northumbria has been split into two. There is an English speaking part of Northumbria and then there is a Danish controlled part of Northumbria. So we don't really know uh, in actual fact who owns what land at this time, but it's basically Yorkshire is uh, is controlled by the Danes and uh, parts of Northumbria uh, that are in Scotland, but also maybe as far as Bambra and Lindisfarne, these places are still controlled by an Anglo-Saxon elite. And they are maybe now subject to those Viking rulers by the year 900, but it all gets a little murky and hazy. The long and short of it is that the Galloway Horde is deposited in a part of Northumbria that we think is still controlled by that Anglo-Saxon Northumbrian kingdom. But everything that we know from the archaeology, including this horde, shows us that things are changing rapidly and there are lots of Vikings about. Now,
0: as Adrian be able to tell you more than most people on Earth Early medieval Scotland and the north of what is now England are pretty confusing. If you have to explain it to to students or even yourself or your friends, what is going on, it's tremendously confusing. I mean, maybe Adrian gives a little bit, a tiny bit of background on, you know, the, the, the people have heard of the Picts and the Strathclyde Britons, and you've talked about Northumbrians, but there's also the Scots as well, and then into that mix around this period you've got the Vikings coming in so maybe just you know, tell us just a tiny bit about this early medieval world that we think of now as Scotland but it, it's 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 uh just a patchwork of kingdoms that are kind of fighting and coalescing into new kingdoms at this time and then also maybe a little bit on Galloway because Galloway even within that context is pretty confusing isn't it and what's going on.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the, the, the historical situation of early medieval Scotland, that is Scotland after the Roman period and up to about the Norman conquest and thereafter. That early medieval period, those centuries in between, are so fascinating because uh, we have a patchwork of different kingdoms and there are regional powers. Uh, and that is the case from the beginning of the period to the end of the early medieval period. So you begin with people speaking Pictish in the northeast of Scotland and people speaking Gaelic in the west of Scotland. And in the part of the world where we're talking about today, Dumfries and Galloway, this is a part of the world that is originally uh, populated by the Britons. It's mostly, it's majority British speaking area. But again, from the seventh and eighth centuries, you are getting incomers who are speaking English, the Anglo Saxon kingdoms moving further north. And then from the ninth century onwards, you get another group of people added already to that uh, uh, mix of peoples. And that is uh, uh, Scandinavian speaking incomers, uh, Norse from the north, uh, Danes from the south. And the Irish sea zone, which Dumfries and Galloway is facing becomes a real sort of a maelstrom of all of these different peoples and kingdoms coming together. So the long and short of it is this part of the world, Dumfries and Galloway, is where all of these things overlap. So there are Gaelic speakers, there are British speakers, and there are Anglo-Saxon speakers and Old Norse speakers all in this county in the 9th 10th and 11th centuries living cheek by jowl in the early medieval period you couldn't just get by with one language you had to be at least bilingual and in this part of the world maybe even more than that
0: so that's yeah i mean, i, I it's what you'd then expect if you found a horde here it's it's going to be pretty confusing not to sound pejorative but there's going to be so many elements in it that it's not going to be straightforward Story. I mean, I think even the site that it's found on, because there's been some great archaeological work done, and I think you've got a bit more insight into maybe the the context of the the land around it, and that there's maybe a structure around where the hoard was. Could you give us just a wee bit about that? So you know, we're down to the level of the the field itself in which it was found.
1: Yeah, this is another, uh, again, we go back to this story as a hoard that was excavated well, uh, because all the right people sort of came out. So again, the hoard itself excavated by the county archaeologist, but then subsequently, once they realized the importance of what they had, there was a call out, uh, and it went to the University of Glasgow. So Tessa Poller of the University of Glasgow initially does a geophysical survey of that field. That is later on followed up by an evaluation they basically strip off a large area around the find spot of the hoard, and that was done by AOC archaeology and AOC archaeology then does further geophysical survey the following year so basically we have a really good picture of the wider context and so these are surveys and uh, evaluations rather than full excavations but it's much more than we get for the usual uh, uh, metal detected find so in short, what they found was that this site, the fine spot of the horde there, Balmagee, is next to uh, a later church. And we don't know how early that church goes. Uh, we know that there is a church called Kirk Andrews in the 12th century in what becomes that parish uh, of Balmagee. Okay, so there is a church dedicated to St. Andrew, certainly from the 12th century. We don't know if the church that is there at Balmagee is that same church. Uh, we don't know how far that does go. But the geophysical survey, the aerial crop mark survey that was done prior to all of this shows that there is a large enclosure, like a big ditch, enclosing uh, this field in which the hoard was found. The uh, AOC evaluation where they opened up a trench around the fine spot did indeed find buildings. There were buildings that were uh, made of timber. They were all kind of plow damage, you know, so the upper layers have been sort of taken away. But we know enough that it looks like a post built structure, the size of a hall or, 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 or something along those lines, about 12 meters. Uh, long, and the hoard find spot is just in between the posts of that building. So unfortunately, we can't really tell archaeologically whether the hoard was deposited in a building uh, uh, or after that building was uh, uh, was abandoned. You know, so we know that there is a structure. There are a couple of radiocarbon dates that indicate this is an early medieval, a contemporary structure, but we don't know the exact relationship of the horde with that structure. Uh, what we know is that it's a timber-built building of a uh, pretty good size. We do have some timber halls, but we also have timber-built churches in places like Whithorn uh, from the wider Dumfries and Galloway area. So what we know then is an early medieval settlement of some sort, whether a secular or ecclesiastical still remains to be seen with a large enclosure around it and the horde uh in the in the sort of center of this complex.
0: And when we talk about the horde, um, it's not misleading in the sense that it's 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 not as we'd think of it, it's just one package. There's I think there are sort of four parcels, the book on this, and we'll give people a link to that as well by Martin Goldberg and Mary Davis is fantastic beautifully illustrated you get a real idea but the thing I took away from that was this idea that there were separate packages and maybe even a decoy hoard or a potential hoard that you're meant to find if you're looking in that area and then you don't notice that the real good stuff is is buried beneath it could you just tell us a little bit about these four parcels and how they relate to each other
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, another thing that makes the Galloway hoard stand out is the complexity of that deposit. It's not just one hoard. It seems to be several parcels, as you said, kind of put together into this one deposit. So it was all excavated and we can tell that it all belongs together. That's the first thing to say. It doesn't look like several deposits made at different times. We know, uh, uh, or we're pretty well convinced that this is a single deposit, but it does make up of very, it's made up of several different deposits. And so I suppose we can start from the point of view of the people who put it in the ground rather than the way it was found. So the very first deposit, as far as we can tell, is a silver lidded vessel and it's closed off and wrapped off uh wrapped in uh uh several layers of textile fabric so it is a lidded vessel full of stuff it's full of anglo-saxon metalwork, beads gold work we'll get to uh, these specific things as incredible things and quite rare things and the silver lidded vessel itself is really important That seems to be the first thing that goes in the ground. And then propped up against the outside of that vessel is a bundle of silver ribbon arm rings. These are really elaborate, quite heavy arm rings of silver. And we know that they're making these at the end of the ninth century in Scandinavia. uh, And they begin to make them in Dublin uh, before long. You know, so we are certainly in the Viking Age with that deposit. That's a bundle of five arm rings tied together, uh, and then next to that, a pile of hack silver, basically a pile of arm rings and ingots of a similar type and a similar date to that bundle of arm rings. You know, these are the kinds of things that you find in great numbers in Ireland, in the northwest of England, uh, and this is the first time that some of these have been found in what's now called Scotland. But they kind of fit into a regional picture. So a big pile of silver next to those. And then uh, uh, strangely enough, there seems to be a layer of gravel and it looked like sort of natural gravel. It's certainly whatever uh, has been sort of dug out of that pit was then placed over those deposits that I told you about. So there's a layer, maybe 30 centimeters or so of the just gravel. And then on top of that one final deposit more of that hack silver arm rings and ingots with that beautiful and rare and unique silver pectoral cross uh, 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 added to it. So there does seem to be a sense of an upper layer or a decoy layer. Uh, uh, where uh, uh, maybe this was supposed to be the kind of thing that if someone found this hoard, they would take this pile of silver, be really happy that they've got this treasure, and then walk away and leave everything else still in the ground. Uh, um, We don't know why this was done. It seems to be quite a rare thing to have a hoard deposited in two different levels like that. I'm told there's one. One or two that are sort of good comparisons, uh, but we haven't found anything quite the same where there is like a distinct layer of soil in between the two levels, almost as if to say the upper one is a decoy and the lower one is where the real
0: action is. Or it might be a case of, you know, when you put your stuff in the washing machine and then you start it and then you realize there's a sock that you've not put in and they've just thought, I'll just put that on top and it'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, they'll just be like, instead, ah, uh, right. we'll, let's <laughs> add that one as well. we'll put the gravel down already. Ah, well. <laughs> but that's okay. So I think that's really good for the context. We know I think people can get a visual as I say, the book is genuinely fantastic. I've I've reviewed it. Um it's the images in it are fantastic, you'll get a really good idea of how, how this works, but um, now we're going to move on. I think what you've all been waiting for is, you know, Adrian. We're going to ask about you know the contents of of these these packages, these four packages that make up the Galloway Hoard, and it's it's really almost impossible in the constraints of a, of a podcast. But could you delight us all, please, with a quick summary of the contents of the different packages in the hoard? Maybe beginning with the. Hiberno-Scandinavian, the, these arm rings, these silver arm rings that we think are made maybe in, in Dublin from the late 9th into the early 10th century.
1: That's right. Okay, so the uh, the, the the hoard again, made out of those four different parcels. Um, there's two parcels that are quite similar. The upper deposit and one of the lower deposits both have ingots and stamped, decorated Hiberno-Norse silver arm rings. So both the... Uh, upper and lower deposits are made up of those two kinds of objects. Uh, Hacked, you know, that means that some of the arm rings are cut in half or uh, thirds, less uh, less often uh, the ingots. The ingots seem to be mostly complete, almost as if the ingots are kind of fresh from the mold. uh, Whereas the arm rings have sort of uh, uh, been tested a couple of times and some of them have been cut up already. But there are subtle differences between the upper and lower hordes in that the lower horde ha- has more complete uh, examples of those objects, more complete arm rings. And so there does seem to be a difference between the upper and lower horde. So these arm rings again uh uh there's about 40 of them all told in this horde and that's uh, uh that's the most that's been found in scotland uh there, there are bits and pieces of arm rings that have been found previous to this there's one other one from galloway of an earlier type of a kind of a different kind we might which might be a danish import uh and then there's uh there's one bit of stamped uh, uh hacked a uh, fragment of a stamped silver uh, object similar to this in the store rock horde from Sky. But there's no other horde that has these kinds of Hiberno-Norse arm rings from Scotland so far. Where they've been found is uh, mainly in Ireland and in great numbers in Northwest England, in particular the Curedale horde. So 40 uh, objects here from this single hoard uh, is a significant proportion of all of the silver armorings rings that we now have from Britain. Uh, it's a big deal. Uh, and it, But when you map them all out, it begins to make sense this dot here in Galloway uh, uh plotted against the fines from Northwest England and the fines from Ireland it really sort of uh, uh, it really sort of puts it all together and it makes sense uh you know so it, it's an outlier currently but it sort of fits within the wider distribution of these things I mean this is
0: what we talk about we talk about the Irish Sea region isn't it, it it's a sort of area by itself the, the coasts that, that surround the Irish Sea are kind of they're connected in a way because it's, there's lots of different maritime societies it's not just the Vikings it's the Northumbrians it's it's the it's the uh the Scots it's the the Irish it's you know that's how people are kind of getting around and it creates this very unique area isn't it with this 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 region
1: Absolutely, and uh, and you know that there's contacts between both sides of the water because these kinds of silver hoards are appearing on both sides at the same time. So there is money flowing through the Irish Sea zone back and forth, and uh, and and that's the the most interesting thing about these. Uh, the most interesting question then is where do they come from? Where are they being made? And the majority of them are still found in Ireland, and we presume that that's where they're being made, most likely in the Viking town of Dublin. However, in recent years, there's been other discoveries, one from Rhenbergauch in Wales and one from Torxy in Lincolnshire, where there are trial pieces, where they are stamping metal. They are trying out the kinds of stamps that are being used to make these rings. And so it's now possible that these arm rings are being made in many different places and they're being used as a sort of common currency almost across the Irish Sea Zone. Okay, so Adrian, you
0: were mentioning there, you mentioned currency, you also mentioned something called hack silver. So, you know, when we're looking at these arm rings in particular, and we've got we've got so many of them, so they're obviously useful for something or many things. Um, so what are they telling us about silver and the use of silver and economies, and but also I imagine because they're you can wear them that they have some sort of role in, in um in display. I think yeah, as we call it in archaeology, the display economy. So there's lots of economic things going here. Can you tell us a little bit about the economic value of the silver as well as its social value?
1: Yeah. So as part of the Unwrapping the Galloway Horde project, generously funded by the AHRC, I should say, I'm the Galloway Horde researcher there. And part of my remit in all of this is to um, kind of put that silver into its economic context, and we're sort of cataloging the silver uh, in a different way so that we can ask new questions out of it. That's all part of the work that we're doing in this stage of the project alongside the fantastic work on textiles. But to zero in on that economic background, Northumbria is technically a coin-using economy at this part of the early medieval period. They've been minting coins out of York uh, since at least the 8th century, and we have loads of coins all the way up to the end of the ninth century at a nearby site in Galloway called Whithorn. It's a monastery, but it's also a royal settlement with churches and halls next to one another in a big cemetery, and this is a very wealthy site. We know that gold and silver are coming in and being worked at places like Whithorn. Uh, There are traces of textiles, which might be silk, uh, in places like these as well. So it's a really wealthy settlement. And there at Whithorn is the largest assemblage of Northumbrian coins from anywhere in Scotland. There's a um, 60-odd, I believe. And uh, they take us straight the way through from the beginning of the coin sequence in the 8th century uh, all the way until eight six seven and that seems to be in in the in in the reign of osbert is the the sort of last of the not beleaguered kings of northumbria and then the great army comes rampaging through and then everything changes so they're minting coins continuously until about eight six seven and that is in fact the last of the northumbrian issues that we have from whithorn so we have a, a pretty complete record then of northumbrian issues up to that point So that's important to say. There are coins in this area. Uh, There's a lot of debate, though, as to what happens after the coin supply dries up. Do they carry on using these coins or are they beginning to trade in other ways? And that is where it gets really interesting. In the 870s, so uh uh, uh just uh, you know uh, uh, almost a decade uh into this sort of great army period there uh these heathen armies are taking down anglo-saxon kingdoms left and right first they're bilking them out of all of their money that they can and if they can't pay up well they uh affect regime change effectively um and um in the 870s, we know that a branch of this army is based in uh, uh, in Northumbria, maybe on the Tyne, uh, and they go raiding up north. And that seems to happen in around 874. And it's fascinating because we have another silver horde that is dated around that time, around 874, 875, uh, because of the coins that are found in it. And this is a horde from Talnotri, uh, which is not terribly far from, uh, from the Galloway Horde itself. This has a couple of Northumbrian coins. It's got some foreign coins from Mercian kings. Uh, and these are interesting because Mercian coins are not circulating in Northumbria. They do a very good job of keeping those coins out and only allowing Northumbrian coins in. And so when you see these foreign coins from another Anglo-Saxon kingdom, you know that something's gone awry. So you've got these silver coins from Mercia popping up here. And then you have the very first of the really foreign at this point, silver coins. There's fragments of uh, Durham coins. These are coming from the Islamic uh, world and they're being traded in Scandinavia uh, in great numbers. And the very fir- first of these to show up in what we now call Scotland is a couple of examples from the Talnachry hoard. The problem is the Anglo-Saxon coins are complete in that hoard, they're undamaged, uh, uh, except for two little holes poked into some of them. Uh, and then the Arabic coins, these Durham's, are clipped and broken up. And so you have two economies visualize there in that single hoard. Uh, a coin-using economy, or maybe the last remnants of those coin users, and then a new economy based on silver, though, uh, based on the weight of precious metal, a bullion economy. And that's what those Islamic coins represent. They're hacked silver. So that's the hacked silver economy. And both of them seem to be coming together in that Talnatri hoard deposited around 874, 875. So between the coin, up to the 860s at Whithorn to the first inklings of Hacksilver in around 875, you know that something big has changed in the economy. And the Galloway Horde is in the generation that sort of follows that. It's in the aftermath of those changes.
0: And so, I mean, the way you're describing it, you're talking about the Viking Great Army, you're talking about Hacksilver. From my work, I'm thinking, okay, this is uh, this is the Viking Horde standard, you know, case closed move on or spend several years doing amazing research on it move on but you know you told Alison Campsey, a great interview you did with the Scotsman newspaper the more you look at the Galloway Horde
1: the less Viking it looks what, what do you mean by that? That's right. That's another one of the many reasons that the Galloway Horde has proven so significant the more we research it. Uh, So when it came out of the ground, it was reported as a Viking horde. And indeed, with these piles of arm rings and ingots, that's exactly what it looks like. Once the silver was cleaned off and we start to uh, look at it in greater detail, we find that that lower deposit of what looked to us like uh, a sort of a Viking silver horde, the lower deposit, some of those hiberno norse arm rings which are again found in great numbers in Ireland northwestern England where we know the Vikings are Um, some of these hordes uh, some of these arm rings have runes etched onto them. Well I'm going
0: to stop you there runes so Mm -hmm. that's also Viking isn't it surely
1: yeah, so we thought, so we thought. <laughs> so runes are, yeah, runes are associated yeah, with, uh, oh, and running uh, with the Viking. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but there are other people using the runic alphabets. And one of these peoples, uh are the Anglo-Saxons. They're using a similar, but a little bit different alphabet. Uh, the And it turns out that these runic inscriptions, when they were read by uh, our, our, our friend David Parsons at the University of Wales, Uh, He identified them, and he was able to transcribe them. Uh, Basically, they are in Anglo-Saxon runes rather than Old Norse runes. The uh, four examples on the arm rings from the Horde have elements of Old English words, ed, till, and bear. And these are strange messages, cryptic messages, perhaps, but uh, they actually form the first element of very common Anglo-Saxon names, Ed, uh, um, uh, Till, there is a Till Red, who is uh, who's known to be in, in Northumbria in, in the 9th and centuries. You know, there's plenty of people whose names start with Ed, Edbert, you know. Um, And so what we assume is that these are abbreviations of people with English names. Now, AOC carries out that evaluation that I mentioned before. They excavate a trench around the site and they metal detect the spoil, make sure they have caught absolutely everything that's been sort of uh, moved out of the hoard by plow action or other damage over the years. And they make sure they've captured everything. And there are a few more silver finds in the plow soil. Uh, One of these is yet another one of those arm rings. It seems to have maybe been split off from the Horde, but this one has a complete name. It's Egbrecht. Uh, Egbert, basically, which is a very common uh, name, specifically in Northumbria. There's lots of different uh, there's lots of different Egberts who are uh, wandering around, including a number of kings. So we have we can't sort of identify this specific Egbert. Uh, it's a very common name, but it is in use in uh, a, a sort of uh, English speaking Northumbria at the time of this horde. What all of that tells us is that whoever owned this hoard at some point included English speakers who are writing their names on these uh, bits of armoring. So you can conjure up any number of interpretations of that. Is this, uh, uh, is this a group of Viking treasure that was captured uh, by an English army who fought the Vikings back? Or is this a payment from a group of uh, people using uh, in that sort of Viking hacksilver economy making a payment of some sort to an English group of people who would then uh, take ownership of these? You can kind of see it either way. But what it means is at some point, this group of what we called Viking treasure is owned by English speakers.
0: And is... I mean, we discussed earlier that Galloway is a kind of confusing place, and the name, as I understand it, it comes from the Gal Gale, which is like the foreign Gales. Go, you know, do we have here, you know, what we'd consider to be Northumbrians, Anglo Saxons that are acting like Vikings, perhaps, or are they sort of Anglo Saxon versions of the Gal Gale? Maybe you can explain a little bit about who the Gal Gale were. Um, They're slightly later, but this idea that you've got. You people that you might think of, okay, they are quote unquote, you know, Celtic, but they're speaking Old Norse or vice versa. Um, so is, is that maybe what's happening here? You've got people that are acting like we consider Vikings, but you know, they would have considered themselves Northumbrians?
1: Yeah, that's right. So that's one of the big questions is what it all kind of means for us here. So we know that certainly from the 10th century, there are Viking burials being made in the counties, uh, in, in the county that we now call Galloway. There's a famous uh, weapon burial, uh, a man with a sword, a ring pin, some beads, you know, typical sort of Viking burial. Dates to around the 10th century based on the kind of sword uh, buried just at uh, uh, just outside the churchyard at Kukubri. You know, So here is an early medieval uh, churchyard, and we know there's Anglo-Saxon sculpture from there that it is a church at that time, and a person buried as a Viking with his weapon uh, 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 right next to him there. So that dates to the 10th century. So we know that from around that time, there are Vikings who are settling in the area and sort of putting down roots, and that's what those Viking burials tell us. Uh, But that question of how we go from a Northumbrian kingdom to the uh, to the realm that was later known as Galloway. It comes from, as you said, it comes from this word, the Gaul Gael, this hyphenated term, the foreigner Gales. It just means that there is a group of people who are speaking Gaelic and Norse. And they don't fall under any of the categories. You can't call them Norse. You can't call them Christians. They're kind of uh, they're either Irish people who picked up Norse or Norse people who picked up Gaelic,, uh, probably a bit of both. That name doesn't end up being applied to this part of the world until the eleventh century. And so we have this kind of period in between in the, around the 9th and 10th centuries where things are changing, and we don't know just how quickly we go from being a Northumbrian kingdom to this kingdom of the Gaul Gael. Uh, um, and so that's where hordes like these can sort of capture these processes as they are going through. I think the, the short answer may be unsatisfying here is that the Galloway horde is actually capturing some of these changes as they happen, but it doesn't tell us whether these are, uh, uh, all English or all Vikings. I think there are lots of different people involved in making up this deposit.
0: I mean, I love it. It the fact is, it, it is messy. You need to have the sort of investigation, the multi-year, multi-person, multi-talented investigation that 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 for this going I think you're you're working with. You've mentioned um some other people you're working, but I think with the the silver material, you're working with with Jane Kershaw and some more work will be coming in on the silver and you know to the scent of where it's from, and that might again inform you you know about the people who are who are burying this. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely, yeah. This is one of these projects that we've been lucky enough uh, uh, to get this AHRC uh, grant, the Unwrapping the Galloway Horde project, of which I'm just the, uh, one of the several postdoctoral researchers. Uh, we're very lucky to be working with uh, Susanna Harris at the University of Glasgow, and she's working with her postdoctoral research assistant, Alexandra Macon. They're uh, really... Um, Investigating the textiles, the soft elements uh, uh, of the uh, of the vessel and its contents, which we'll we'll get to shortly. But yeah, we have other sort of partnership projects, and just sticking with the silver for now. We have uh, we're incredibly lucky uh, to be working in partnership with a project out of the University of Oxford, uh, uh, funded by the European Research Council. It's called Silver and the Origins of the Viking Age, uh, uh, with Jane Kershaw and Stephen Merkel. Uh, and several other very smart people. They're using a lot of the Galloway Horde silver as one of their case studies. They're analyzing the composition of the silver arm rings and silver ingots that are found in Viking Age context. Uh, mostly in Britain, but uh, 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 but further afield as well. And in that process, they're analyzing the chemical makeup of the silver, the composition of that silver, how much silver, how much of it uh, is sort of uh, trace elements. And in looking at the isotopes of those trace elements, it gets very scientific, but basically, if they gather enough data, they will be able to approximate broad sources of the silver what that translates to is when their project is finished uh, they'll be able to say these kinds of objects are mostly made up of anglo-saxon silver and this group over here is made up of uh silver derived from islamic coins from from uh from the durhams and other sources in between that so they'll be able to distinguish where all the sources of silver are coming from i can't wait to see more of those results uh follow that project for more details on that but it's really going to be a game changer once we know how um how the silver uh is being gathered and made into these wonderful armings
0: and that's i mean you've got lots of experts just purely on the silver loan but it's when we get into the 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 absolute sort of the, the the show stealer the this lidded vessel and you'll need you'll need a sort of army of experts just on the contents of of this could you could you tell us just begin by telling us a little bit about this this vessel that survives with a lid, which is incredible in and of itself, a little bit about the vessel and then maybe from that begin to sort of go through from from maybe the, the top down just some of the some of the highlights and some of the, this real huge range of, of eclectic mix of artifacts that are inside the, this lidded vessel.
1: That's right. So we've talked a lot about the silver. It's really fascinating. It forms the core of my work, you know, uh, uh, um, and and the, uh, the silver vessel is uh, something that is really, uh, uh, really unique here. So there are a couple of Viking hordes from Britain that have included vessels similar to this. Uh, this one still stands out even amongst that small group uh, of hordes. This is a lidded vessel. Uh, It's silver uh, with sort of gilding around the outside. Okay, Um, and it's got these... Very interesting designs with sort of, uh, what look like, uh, uh, what look like lions and panthers and and sort of exotic creatures. And at the center of these motifs, there's what looks like an altar with a fire on top. And, uh, principal curator Martin Goldberg, uh, uh, who's in charge of the Galloway Horde project, he's, um, really done a deep dive into these sources, again, with help from experts from museums all around the world. He showed it to as many people as he can. And what we're sort of driving towards um, is that this is uh, a very old vessel by the time it was used. Uh it- it seems to be from Central Asia rather than a Carolingian vessel. So the other silver vessels from Viking hordes that are found in Britain so far, they seem to be made in France and Germany, the Carolingian part of Europe at this time. This one seems to be earlier than those, and it might come from uh, as far as modern-day Iran, Um, It could be that fire altar that I mentioned. It seems to have a religious significance. This seems to be iconography. And the parallels that Martin has found for that are within the sort of Sogdian or the the sort of successors of the Sasanian Empire uh, in Central Asia. So this could be a really interesting object indeed. It could be an artifact created for use within the sort of Zoroastrian uh, religious system, but has, for, for, for whatever reason, has been passed. Down and 100 200 years later has been made into a vessel for holding the contents of this hoard.
0: And now we can finally get to what is in this lidded vessel? Just a few of your personal highlights, or you think you know, artifacts in it that you think can just tell us amazing stories, or things that we just never even conceptualized could be could have survived.
1: So, the inside of this vessel. Uh, is almost an entire hoard unto itself, separate from the rest of the hoard. Uh, there's one or two things which still belong to that Viking Age world. There is a silver brooch, a penannular brooch, which is of a kind that is being made in Ireland in the late 9th century. So that brooch it's missing its pin, so it's just the hoop there. Uh, they just want it for potentially just that silver content. That is a bit of silverware that links it to the silver hoard outside the lidded vessel. That tells us that we're in the late 9th century. OK, and this vessel is packed very carefully. That silver brooch is not the sort of last thing dropped in at the very end. There's actually sort of bundles of objects within that lidded vessel. It is packed straight to the top. So we can kind of go down from the from the uh, sort of top down. The top of the deposit is what looks like a string of beads, glass beads. And one of them is a ninth century kind, a Viking Age kind from Ireland. And the other ones are really bashed up and dinged up as if they have been in use for a long time. And the only parallels that we found for those beads are in the early Anglo-Saxon and Merovingian worlds. So these beads are probably 100 or 200 years old even by the time that they're buried in this vessel. So they are curated objects. And then there's a couple of weird things there's a a rattlestone, there's a natural round object that seems to be Like a geode, uh, a stone, but it is hollow on the inside, and it's got a little flint nodule knocking about, so that when you shake the stone, it makes a rattling sound. And we know from sort of folk deposits uh, and folklore uh, uh, in later centuries that these things are used as amulets, these rattlestones, in sort of uh, folk medicine and folk cures. But there's an example of something that is probably just a curio or an amulet dropped in alongside those glass beads that are already very old. So that top layer seems to be amulets. And the only coin from this hoard is found in this top layer. It's incorporated into a pendant. So one of those ancient glass beads has cracked at some point a long time ago. And instead of throwing this bead away, what they've done is they've repaired it by encasing it in silver. They've made a lovely little silver case for it, and then they've put a uh, they've put a, a sort of a pendant in it so that you can kind of string it on a a a, a beaded necklace or maybe just wear it around your hip. But um, that pendant is piercing through a coin. Uh, And this coin is decades old by the time of this uh, uh, of this deposit. So that coin and that pendant are also heirlooms. So the top layer of this hoard is basically old curated items, uh, heirlooms, things that were really special and were carefully uh, uh, kept, lovingly kept for hundreds of years before they were deposited in this hoard.
0: And 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 as you said, there are multiple bundles in it, and I mean, I think it all fascinated me. Um, you know, I I I studied the silver of the period, but there's gold in there, and there's also a, a, a rock crystal jar. And I know um, Martin Goldberg has has done some more work on 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 that. And these are maybe the rock crystal jar and the the gold workers stuff that maybe people haven't seen as so much of yet. So you could give us a little
1: bit more more on them please that's right so underneath that upper layer in that lidded vessel with the um with the amulets and the beads then you get down to the uh more precious metal objects so that that layer of uh a layer of sort of amulets and heirlooms is resting on that silver penannular uh that bossed penannular brooch that i mentioned before underneath that there is a stack of Anglo-Saxon silver brooches. These are disc brooches of an ornate kind. They're decorated in a kind of art style called the tr- Truhiddle style. And generally, we, uh, we have Truhiddle style objects from Scotland, including from Dumfries and Galloway, but nothing like these brooches. These kinds of disc brooches have never been found in Scotland. You more often find them in uh, Southeast and Southwest uh, England, basically. Uh, and these are real outliers here for Northumbria. There's seven of those brooches. And if you've seen images of the Galloway Horde, you've probably seen images of these Truhiddle style uh, decorated objects. In uh, uh, And next to those, uh, we come to, and those have been on display whenever the Galloway Horde has been on display. Uh, uh, So those are very well known and familiar to people by now. But yeah, as you mentioned, there are things next to that, the bottom of this vessel is a material that was wrapped in textiles and it was so fragile and so in need of conservation uh, that they were never sort of placed, they're never put on display yet. While the objects went on display, those objects then went back to the lab. And our expert conservator, Mary Davis, has been peeling them apart one by one very carefully. And the textiles are being studied by our partners uh, at the University of Glasgow. All of that has been ongoing over the last two years. Uh, and they've already identified several different textiles wrapping these objects. There are silks, there are linens, and there are fine leather-like, suede-like uh, uh, materials used to wrap these objects. So what are they wrapping in all of these uh, a, a, a really soft materials? What are they carefully packing in these textile bundles? When they were unwrapped, we started to see uh, uh, gold everywhere. And so Viking Age silver hoards generally uh, consist of silver. Very rarely do you find gold in these hoards. The bottom of that silver vessel uh, is full of very rare and strange and wonderful uh, majority gold objects. In particular, there is a rock crystal jar. Uh, And it's encased in gold wire and gold filigree. And that is a mysterious object. There's nothing else like it in the Anglo-Saxon world or on the continent. They haven't found a really good parallel for that. But Martin Goldberg has found parallels for the rock crystal element of it in the Vatican Museum in Rome. Uh, He's found other columns made out of rock crystal. And when you turn this rock crystal jar upside down, it does indeed look like it has been a carved Corinthian column. So these carved rock crystal objects, they date back to the Roman period, the second, third century, uh, where they can be dated at all. And so this is a very ancient object indeed. But again, it has passed through many hands in the centuries in between Uh, the Roman period, and since then it has been encased in gold and converted from whatever its original function was into a jar. Uh, We know that this must have been sacred, a sacred object at some point. It has an inscription written in the gold filigree on the bottom of this jar, and that's something that we weren't expecting. Uh, the letters are sort of, uh, they're Latin letters with crosses in between them, and they read something like, this was made for Bishop Higwald. So Higwald made this, something along those lines, okay? And what's interesting about that is that this is, uh, uh, along with that cross that was found at the top of the hoard, two elements which almost certainly came from a church. You know, so uh, uh, these things are sort of uh, you're thinking now about looted material, you know, stuff that's been ripped from a church treasury or something. Uh, But this object was, again, carefully wrapped in layers of textile. The other gold objects are even stranger. They're little gold filigree mounts. They're very, very small. You see them in pictures and you think that they're big, chunky objects, but they are dainty and there are mounts with little tubes. And uh, anybody who's watched the show Detectorist might recognize the word Eastel. They're these sort of uh, uh, objects made out of gold mainly that uh, are associated with the time of King Alfred. Uh, King Alfred is very famously sending out copies of gospel books throughout his kingdom because he wants everybody to be reading from the same hymn book, literally. And he's sending these gold pointers, which, which are generally called eastels. And we found lots of these socketed mounts before and we assume that they're all the same thing they're sort of pointers for sort of pointing to where you're reading on the sacred text the ones in the Galloway horde though their sockets are not empty like the other ones that have been found they are uh uh they actually are holding uh cord made out of silk So there's cord going through these sockets, and there are too many sockets. One of them has four of these sockets pointing in all four directions, and so this is no longer a pointer. These objects, uh, uh, we don't really have a name for them yet. They're gold socketed mounts, but they are certainly there to be threaded with uh, a really fine silk braided cord. What is this object? It's a kind of it seems to be maybe a dress item, uh, sort of dress fastener of some sort. Maybe a headdress. That's something that our our, our team, especially uh, uh, Mary Davis, the conservator, uh, Susanna Harris, and our partners like Leslie Webster, formerly uh, of the British Museum, they're working round the clock to try and find the best parallels for this and sort of tell us what this object uh, was used for. But the long and short of it is, these are rare. Uh, they're precious objects made out of gold, and they're using uh, precious textiles, silk, which is hugely rare and expensive at this time. And they're being bundled up and wrapped up with great care. Uh, and these are some of the first things that were placed into that lidded vessel. And
0: I think you know we're, we're we're coming coming to the end here, but I've got my notes and I've got to ask you about them. I've just written down dirt balls. Can you tell us about the the famous or maybe not so famous yet dirt balls? Literally, literally balls of dirt that were in this remarkable lidded vessel.
1: That's right. So these things, uh the dirt balls are among the objects that are too fragile uh to go on display. They've been kept in sort of cold storage just to kind of preserve them, just like the textiles. Uh the there are two uh little tiny balls. Of dirt. It's not, uh, uh, it, 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 they are kind of unremarkable to the naked eye. And it was very strange to find them. They're at the very bottom of that vessel. So that means that there were some of the first things that were put into that vessel, if you think about it that way. And they are placed nearby where these gold objects, including that rock crystal jar, which might be sort of a Christian relic of some sort. Okay, those two dirt balls, again, they just didn't look like very much. It looked basically like plasticine, like Play-Doh that somebody had rolled up in their hands. You know, they're that kind of small and tactile. But when they took them down uh, to our partners in the British Museum Conservation Lab, uh, we were able to put them under the microscope uh, and uh, CT scan them as well. And what comes up in those scans is that they are absolutely full of specks of harder material. And uh, they were able to identify it with the SEM as flecks of gold and flecks of bone and it's all the way through so it's not like bits of gold that have flaked off the gold objects and stuck to the surface they're straight the way through into that dirt ball and so whatever that dirt is it has had little flecks of bone and little flecks of gold all the way through it and then it was sort of wrapped up in these little balls these are very strange objects. There's nothing quite like this in any of these hordes. But uh, we, uh, again, Martin uh, Martin Goldberg uh, has sort of cast far and wide for parallels for these. And we've got uh, a pretty reasonable guess at what they might be. One of the most important things that a church could have at this point is the relics of the saints. And the most prestigious of those relics were the saints from Rome, your St. Peter's, uh, or the relics of the apostles, St. Paul and St. Andrew, and relics of the church fathers from the Holy Land. These were the most prestigious relics that anybody could have. And we have a lot of historical evidence that these relics were being sort of uh, packaged up and sent to the four corners of the world, gifted to the great churches of their time. Some of the most prestigious amongst those relics, the best ones that you could have, are uh, uh, bits of bone, or the earth from the saint's tomb. And that little clay, that little dirt ball, rather, that was rolled and has gold and bone in it is so evocative of a little bit of dirt taken from the tomb of a saint, the earth of a saint's tomb, that we think that's almost certainly what these things are. Uh, there are other practical, uh, uh, you know, interpretations as well. We've worked with metalworkers who says, "I gather up the, you know, shavings of gold and silver from my workbench in a little dirt ball like this, so that I can retrieve them later on." But a metalworker wouldn't have flecks of bone uh, uh, in that sort of workbench as well, and so we think it's something very different. And the most plausible explanation so far is that these are earth relics. So again, with that pectoral cross. With the rock crystal jar with the name of a bishop and these dirt balls, there are certainly Christian objects here, and these are not precious metal objects. The amount of gold that's in these dirt balls is negligible, so you wouldn't steal that for its gold content. Whoever has kept that has kept it because it's important, and it's probably only important to a believer. So there are Christian objects carefully kept alongside the dress items, the beads, and the money the silver that's outside this vessel all of that put together that is really capturing the early medieval world of Northumbria at this time
0: so it's incredible so you could say that sinners certainly took them from churches but they could originally belong to saints so we could love literal part I mean this hoard is is so good that it actually has bits of saints in them and I think that's I think I think I th- I don't think I'll speak to producer Luke here. I don't think we can necessarily top actual saints in in the Galloway Horde. I think that's probably good. I think I just want yeah. to ask, uh, Adrian about what what they're planning next, and, and any question that 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 Luke has. Um, Luke's not an archaeologist know, by training, but that was it. Okay, <laughs> go go ask the question then, Luke. Please. So
2: I, that is what I want to know. What is the next plan? What what do you do next with something like this?
1: Yeah, so I mean there's um the the HRC funded unwrapping the Galloway Horde project is ongoing. We have a a, a dedicated website on the National Museum of Scotland website. It's just nms.ac.uk slash galloway horde. And that's where you can access all of the educational resources that we've put so far. We made these brilliant videos. Uh, for the exhibitions the exhibition uh, went on tour from edinburgh to kukubri to aberdeen and at each leg of the tour we produced new videos and new interactive content on the materials that couldn't be on display so we made virtual resources we made those videos available online so you can see them there get a closer look at those gold filigree mounts and that rock crystal jar and the lovely textiles that are coming out of all of this. Okay, So you can follow all of that. The project goes on until 2024 and we still have a lot to do, believe it or not. So um, up until now, a lot of the project has been about conserving things, getting them ready for display, explaining it to the public, telling them why it's so important. And we've done a lot of public lectures. A lot of that is available online. The lab work, the conservation has continued and the analysis has continued throughout all this time. So in the rest of this year and up until 2024, there's a couple of things you can certainly expect. We're getting uh, as many radiocarbon dates as we can from the organic materials inside and outside that lidded vessel. So we're trying to sort of say, is this a single event or are these things sort of curated over long periods of time? Are there lots of different things? And I think we know the answer there but it'd be good to get that sort of confirmed with radiocarbon dating. Um, The analysis of those textiles is ongoing, again, with our partners at the University of Glasgow. um, Just how much of this is silk? Um, Where is this silk coming from? These are the big questions that tell us about the sort of world of Northumbria at this time. Okay, there's dye analysis off of those those textiles as well, we can maybe try to imagine what colors, what patterns would have been on there. And that helps us kind of identify where these things are coming from. And yeah, the silver analysis that Jane Kershaw and her colleagues are doing, uh, which will maybe tell us where the silver is coming from. In short, there's still a lot more to be said about this. And then, yeah, that'll help us sort of get at those big questions. Who's depositing this hoard? Why did they do it? And why did they never come back for it? All of those things are still to be uh, still to be done. So stay tuned.
0: Stay tuned. I think that we can't we can't end it on a better note than that. And it just remains me to say thank you so much. Absolutely, fat. I mean, this is something I study, but an absolutely fascinating talk. And uh, you've been a brilliant representative for the project and all the many people and and many funding bodies that have made this possible. So. Uh, just leaves for myself, uh, Dr. Tom Horn, to say thank you, Dr. Adrian Maldonado. Um, and uh, my producer, Luke, will say again, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Wow. Um... I think this is actually maybe one of the few podcasts where people will actually be listening to the bit at the end just in case, <laughs> you know, after, like, the credits run, Adrian's going to appear at the end and say something else that's completely ridiculously amazing. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but the dirt balls, the, you know, the, the thought of somebody somewhere maybe in Rome rubbing them on a, a, a shrine and just to, on order to collect this whole Lisa to dust is just, I can't, you know, it's it's difficult to process how, cool that is and as i said in the podcast you can you top actually having a a saint the finding of a saint on your potentially on your on your podcast so I, I don't it. know if you shared that yeah
2: it's absolutely incredible it's such an odd thing like i mean the fact that you're shocked by it and fascinated by it is impressive to me because you know all this stuff a lot so i'm obviously impressed by everything that's said on this podcast because it's all so new to me but when i see you being impressed by something on these it always makes me go oh wow this is a big thing this is an incredible thing and i, I liked what you said in the podcast about it was taken by sinners but it's probably saints and I like <laughs> yeah, <that>. yeah. <laughs> a poetic turn of phrase on that but um no it's it's this was for me one of the most fascinating ones uh the fact that it's so many kind of different cultures and history intertwining in it is incredible and i love the opportunity of obviously getting to hear you talk about this but what the audience might know is i get the opportunity to sit and edit these podcasts as well so the information is literally right in front of me for hours on end and it's incredible for me to get to sift through all of this this is my version of archaeology i'm digging through these clips to (laughs) year. But yeah no it's And he does
0: he does a great job folks and he's not just doing this to get to get his end of year bonus um he, <laughs> he does a fantastic job and, and Adrian did a fantastic job today you know he's he's really meant to be helping with the project particularly with with academic and and the public outreach of this and yeah. you can tell from his enthusiasm and but he's got the academic um you know uh, skills to also show that this is really connecting this period is what he was talking about we we kind of know that it was kind of british and anglo-saxon in the southwest of scotland and then it becomes kind of viking and sort of celtic and he's you know saying i, I think the real takeaway for me was that it's allowing us to sort of stitch together this sort of these this, this sort of mini dark ages that's sort of in, in this sort of 9th 10th century in this part of the world and it's very rarely to be able to do that for a field or a town, but if you can do it for like a region and a, such a an interesting and dynamic region as the Irish Sea region that uh, Galloway looks on to, then, you know, I think, you know, we've archaeologically, historically, culturally, we've, we've won a watch, as they say. So I hope you guys all enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, I'm sure they did. And if you did enjoy it, make sure to go back and check out our backlog. We have plenty of interesting podcasts like this one, um, all the way through about loads of different facets of history and archaeology. Give us a follow if you haven't already, give us a subscribe, give us a like, leave us a comment on YouTube or uh, leave us a comment on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, any of those places. And uh, we'd be happy to hear from you. This is all about outreach. It's all about uh, spreading this message and these stories out to as many people as we can and there's no point in doing that unless you come back to us with your stories, so we'd love to hear from you
0: Joe, cool. thank you so much and hopefully we'll see you again soon Goodbye
1: All right.